electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCRT. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. New questions arise around the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Does any of this change people's view of doing business in Saudi or doing business with MBS? Boeing's CEO is out and the Starliner is back on Earth after a software glitch in the clock. Apparently was off by 11 hours. What? And Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield, why his company hit the public markets through an unorthodox process. There's a something that really hasn't transformed since this process was invented. That's taking into account the way that information flows today. We've got those stories and more. Uber, Skywalker, and cats. I am CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Monday, December 23rd, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today, but sitting in for him, we have Tom Farley. He is the CEO of Farpoint Ventures. He's also a CNBC contributor. Our guest host for the hour is Joanne Lippmann. She is the Distinguished Journalism Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. She's also a CNBC contributor. And, and, they, guys. and they all got the memo on the festive clothing I know. today. If not Great today, minds think alike, right? You know? Some clashing shades of maroon and red, but we're all very festive. And we have some news breaking just literally in the past hour now. A court in Saudi Arabia sentencing five people to death for the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. He was murdered, of course, in that Saudi consulate in Istanbul just uh, last year by a team of Saudi agents. Saudi state-run TV saying three other people were sentenced to prison over the killings. Reports say that the investigation found that the former top advisor to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had no proven involvement in the killing. Now, the kingdom has denied that MBS had any involvement or knowledge of the operation. So, um... Some form of justice being doled out today, but uh, there will be lots of questions. I don't think this is a story that ends. I don't think anybody believes it. I don't think anybody believes it. That's, that's sort of... So is there kangaroo justice? Court? Is it kangaroo court? I don't know. I don't know. Were these, the five, were these the five men that we were seen on tape? I don't know. Hard to know. And then the question, of course, does any of this change people's view of doing business in Saudi or doing business with MBS? Well, I, I think this is likely was done with that... It, exact intention. Right. I mean, you saw the way institutional investors stayed away from the Saudi Aramco IPO. And you think they, it was because of this? Certainly, certainly human rights was, was, was part of that. I mean, I was at that first big summit they had, and uh, you were there as yep. well, mm-hmm. and, and it was packed, and all the great and the good, all the biggest pockets of money in the world were there. The, the next year, the year after Khashoggi's murder, right. Uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a ghost town. Well, and there were still people who went back. Even the administration was back the next year before this ruling came out. Yes. So I think it was kind of like time out. You're in the penalty box for a year, maybe longer. Yeah, but it's not full on right. back. I mean, again, that, that IPO 
nobody, really right. nobody invested in that IPO. And you think largely, that was a, it was largely just arm twisting of, of the retail. Right. And you think that was a function, though, not of the transparency issues, not of disclosure issues, but of. See, I you, think that may right. played a bigger role. I thought it was. I thought it was no, all it was these all other of issues. That. It was. It was all of that. But no, I, right. absolutely. Human it doesn't help to have massive no, it, human rights violations. It doesn't right. help. And and I just want to flip it for a second and think about this from MBS's position within Saudi Arabia. Uh, remember, this is a guy who's a reformer. Right. Uh, I put that in quotes to some extent, but indeed there are some true reforms. But at the same time, he's a reformer. He's buying yachts. He's buying paintings. He's buying chalets, and he's locking up. Uh, I don't remember the exact number. Over a hundred over 100 important people in the, in the Ritz-Carlton there. Right. And now this, you have five people sentenced to death. Do people look at this and say, now, wait a minute, they were actually following out your orders. That right. doesn't... That's uh, what I mean. I don't, I don't, know, feel that this, just. I don't right. know that this turns, the page, turns right. the page or brings them into a new chapter. On right. these things. The entire situation is so disheartening. It's hard, to even, it's hard to even talk about. Former CEO of Uber, Travis Kalanick, has now sold more than $2.5 billion worth of his shares since a lockup period expired just last month. That leaves him now with less than 10% of his holdings left and puts him on pace to be completely divested within days. His remaining stake is worth about $250 million. He's still a member of Uber's board. Kalanick has been working on his new venture, Cloud Kitchens, which has been buying real estate around the world in a bet that restaurants will ultimately pay rent capacity to create food for delivery. But this is a is this is an indictment, I think, of Uber in terms of in terms of Kravis's view of the future of the company, or is it something else? To, to quote Jim Cramer, sell, sell, sell. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. He's the smart money. Nobody on earth knows more about Uber than Travis Cowan. He's on the board. He, he's he on has, the board. He has he the information. He the business. He knows the competitors. He, I mean, this is a very, very smart money. Okay, but could it be either some frustration, frustration with the direction of the company that he just dis- disagrees with may not be wrong. Well, not and to or, the company was not very nice to him when they were going out with the IP. Right. That was my question. Him, yeah. Is it, is it really an indictment days. of Uber or is it just say something about the relationship? The relationship that has so soured. Yeah. I, this guy cares deeply about his own personal net worth. The first time I met him, uh, he, he told me how much that Dude. personal net worth was. Okay. But I so think I don't think he's making... to be able to control it. The idea of handing over control to somebody else to be able to run his money, if he can take it out and invest it in a project where he actually has hands-on experience, because even though he's on the board, I don't think he gets much of a say in what happens in the company at this point and disagrees with uh, Derek Ashwashawi, where, where things are headed as well. Things have been so frayed. I, I, I thought it was a poor form that they didn't allow him to stand on the dais at the New York Stock Exchange the day that they went public. He was yeah, it was right. father. Petty. Yeah, it was. Wait, so you? So we think there's a personal personality I, I clash? I don't know. Or- or I don't does have he any actually need money to raise money for his new project? Right. And, and I, I see him as being the type of person. I see him as being the type of person. No, but I see him as being the type of person who would like to run his own money. He doesn't seem like somebody who is a passive sort of investor or somebody who likes to say, okay, you run the show and I'll, and I'll figure it out. It seems to me that he would want to be more in control of his destiny. I, but aren't you both right? It, Isn't it also a personality clash? I mean, every, every time, Andrew, I've seen you ask Dara, yeah. uh, and I've asked Dara, the answer you get back isn't an emphatic, you know, yeah, yeah we're, we love we're, each be- other. we're besties and we're no. movies together. Sure. Right. No. Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, brought in $176 million in North America in its debut weekend. And that was enough to top the box office here, but it is the smallest haul of the new Star Wars trilogy. 
The movie was hit with pretty harsh reviews and a 57% rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes. More, most of the time, I don't care what the critics say. Rotten Tomatoes, I pay a little more attention to, but it's not going to stop me from going to see this movie. What did the Quickwell family think? I think part of it is, look, it came out and the way the holiday falls this year, okay. you know, I, I'm going to see it with the entire family uh, over I, Christmas. I thought the whole gang was no, already My brothers, was their wives, in. my parents. It's a my, big to-do. My son already saw it and, and he said it's way better than what Rotten Tomatoes said. See, and I, I, I tend to think that that's probably the case. Most people I've talked to have seen it have said the same thing. If you're a Star Wars fanatic, right. you're if not you're a fan it. and he yeah. said it's better than the previous film, so I think if you're a fan you're going. And, and I know that we're all saying, oh, this is the first under $200 million opening, but let's, I mean, let's be real. I mean, it's $176 million versus cats at Six and a half million dollars. <laughs> the Farley family contributed sixty dollars to cash. Oh, okay, hold on. Stop, stop, stop the show. <laughs> what happened? Tell us, give us a review so, of cats. So let me let me be clear. Yep. It was not three members of the Farley family. Okay. And you saw the And not me. The previ- the the early Viewing, before they've updated, before they've updated the, the right. digital changes or whatever they're trying to do. Which is crazy. The yes. review was scathing. Right. So it was a yes. big movie weekend. Scathing Frozen from the Farley two, family? From the Farley family. Frozen 2 on Saturday. They said it was actually quite good. Good music, good plot. Not as good as okay, Frozen 1, Tom Farley's not good. participating in either of these films. Dear God, no. Okay. Uh, and then Cats on Sunday, kids hated it. They said Taylor... First of all, it was confusing. What, even, what, even, what are the ages? Uh, 14 and 11. Okay. All girls. Okay. And they said it was confusing. And, and most damning, Taylor Swift was only in the movie for one short song was how bait it was and switch. described to me. A little, bit of a, little bit of a bait and switch. Well, the fact is they're now putting in a new film. I mean, they're actually replacing the film. I've never heard of that ever yeah. after the release date. Right. I've but never I think heard there's that a, either. I think there's a lot of people like us. We actually we had our big family movie date this weekend and we had bought in advance. We had bought the cats tickets. The reviews came out and we returned the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to see Frozen 2 instead and it was great. Can we call this like a holiday edition of Squawk Box? Can we do that all week? By the way, happy Hanukkah, everybody. That was last yeah. night for us. We do Christmas, too. We're Christmas-loving Jews. Coming up, Boeing's year of not-so-great news capped off with a space test flight that didn't go according to plan and the departure of the CEO. What will take off and what won't for the company in 2020? And later, do you slack? We've got the CEO of the messaging platform. There are hundreds of thousands of people coming into the office this morning who check Slack first thing when they wake up. It's the last thing they check at night, and it runs all of the workflows through the course of the day. What makes his company different from everyone else's? And keeping up the growth after going public. Back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Straight up on Becky. Three, two, one. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. 
I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today, but joining us for the full three hours is Tom Farley. We also have a guest host with us for this hour, Joe Lavornia, who is Natixis chief economist. And Joe, it's good to see you. Thank you, Becky. Good to be here. The economy's been looking pretty good so far, and the market certainly reflects it. Looks great. People are coming around to that view. Boeing's uncrewed Starliner spacecraft launched Friday. Three, two, one, and liftoff. You heard the on-scene discussion of it here on the podcast, and it is now back on Earth. Starliner is a test craft for future human spaceflight, and it was marred by an orbital error that prevented it from eventually docking with the International Space Station. The capsule was course-corrected and returned to Earth yesterday, Sunday, in the New Mexico desert. Morgan Brennan joins us right now. She is at the desk, on the desk, yes. after being right there in, in the Cape, Cape Canaveral, right? Yeah, they're uh, live and on the ground for the launch on Friday morning. The launch itself went well. The issues happened after right. this Starliner spacecraft got to space. So 7.58 a.m. Eastern on Sunday, yesterday morning, Boeing's unmanned Starliner touched down at the Army's White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, successful ending to a botched mission in which it failed to dock the International Space Station, hurtling at 25 times the speed of sound. Uh, about a mile above Earth, in the dark, three parachutes deployed. This is a procedure that challenged Boeing in the past, so it was key to see that happen. Starliner became the first American-made human-rated orbital capsule to land on land. Big question now, what happens next? The malfunction on Friday was software-based, specifically a clock error. Still on a call yesterday, a Boeing official saying once they gather all the data, they expect 85 to 90 percent of test objectives to have been fulfilled. So what does this mean for humans getting aboard? Well, expect analysis to take weeks, if not months. Then NASA debates whether Starliner needs another test without crew, which, given the fixed-price contract, Boeing would presumably pay for. Meantime, experts say this puts SpaceX, which is also a NASA's commercial crew program, in the lead, depending on its own key safety test next month, to become the first to take astronauts from U.S. soil to space in more than eight years. You said it was a clock issue, just meaning that the internal clock wasn't set on the right time, so the boosters went off at the wrong time or something? Yeah, so so it was a timing error, a clock error, and what essentially happened was um, the automated system within Starliner basically reaches down into the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket to gauge the timing and link up. Apparently it was off by 11 hours. What? So that's part of the reason I think that this didn't show up in simulations and why this was so unexpected. They don't but it's know such a yet stupid thing what to have caused wrong. it. That it's poor developer. So frustrating. I know, which is why I think... Not a problem were... with any of the systems, just a timing. Exactly, exactly. Oh, and this is also, I think, why NASA and Boeing have said that if astronauts were on board, this issue could have been seen and rectified pretty right, quickly. That they and why that's they that's what I wondered at the time. If somebody was actually ISS. manually there to override this, could this have been prevented? I think the most important part was that the landing came in safely right. on Sunday. You were able to take off and land with no risk to anybody who would have been on board. It was, it was to use Jim Bridenstine, the administrator of NASA's words, an absolute bullseye. Two most important parts of a space mission where humans are involved, the launch and the landing. Both of those actually went right, which is why I think this is even up for debate right now on whether a second uncrewed test is going to be necessary. What do you think is going to happen? You want to handicap it? What do I think is going to happen? I think, again, this depends on SpaceX's own test. Uh, In January, I think SpaceX could potentially, uh, based on where we're at right now, be the first... Uh, again, to bring, to bring humans into low Earth orbit. 
But I think it's a very strong likelihood that both of these companies will be doing that next year. The one other thing I would say in all of this, and the NASA administrator said this to me, this also now pushes NASA to look at other potential companies who could come into this program too, whether it's Lockheed Martin with Orion or maybe Sierra Nevada Corporation, which is the other private billionaire-backed commercial space company. All right, let's bring in Sheila Kailu. She is aerospace and defense analyst at Jefferies. She has a buy rating and a $420 price target on Boeing. And Sheila, what did you think as you were watching this happen on Friday? Just um, culminating a year of not-so-great news for Boeing. I mean, I think what's successful is the launch was successful, the landing was successful. It it was an autonomous capsule, so if there was astronauts on board, it would have been potentially successful. And I think it goes to show that this is the commercial crew program trying to take astronauts to, uh, to the International Space Station. There's only two providers. There's a reason why there's only two commercial OEMs out there, Boeing and Airbus, and there's a handful of defense primes. These development programs are difficult. SpaceX has encountered its own hurdles and own delays. So naturally, these, these timelines are difficult. Who do you think is in the lead right now between SpaceX and Boeing, just based on what's happened now, what's to come? Well, SpaceX's uh, final abort flight test is, I think, scheduled for January 11th. So they look to be in the lead. If um, that goes well. If that goes well. But it seems to be the final test. So potentially we could get astronauts in to ISS by the second half or the first half. Uh, To Morgan's point, in terms of what's happening, in terms of who else this might lure into the space, do you think that there could be other entrants who will now look at this and say, okay, this gives us room for entry? It does, but... We don't know if SpaceX is making money on the commercial uh, crew program. So that's one thing. That's partially why their costs are lower than Boeing. Um, So it has to be somebody that's billionaire-backed. It can't be a startup with billions of dollars. uh, Because you'll run out of money. Yes. Sheila, when I... I just wrote down the list of the failed missions. SpaceX has had failed missions, Blue Origin, NASA, Virgin Galactic. Is Boeing, is this a bit of piling on for Boeing? I mean, this was a big story. My Twitter feed was full of it over the weekend. Is this an even bigger story because Boeing is Boeing at this moment in time with such a tough 2019? I think if the MAX was not grounded, this would have been overshadowed and it would have been, you know, NASA was hesitant to call it a failure and was looking into it. So I think it would have been just a glimpse and not as big of a story. I also think that part of the reason this got as much attention as it did, right or wrong, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, deserved or not, the fact that this was an automation or software issue malfunction also seemed to raise some eyebrows. Sheila, you started this conversation by saying this cap's a really rotten year for Boeing with a lot of terrible headlines. You've got a buy rating and a $420 price target. What has to happen for that to be correct? And by the way, is that a 12-month price target you're It's a 12-month at? price target. Uh, you know, we see a turbulent ride, but we see the stock above 400 a year from now. Because I, I think you have to assume the max flies. And one thing that was overshadowed last week was the EU regulator uh, was thinking about a February timeline back into entry into service. So that didn't get as much news flow as the Starliner, but I thought that was positive that the EU was almost leading the discussion. Although we have seen so much uh, turbulence in the relationship with the FAA at this point and, and the new administrator there who basically is saying it's, it's going to be on our timeline and stop pushing us on any of those things. Right. I think... The FAA and Boeing have struggled on Boeing being potentially overly optimistic. I think that's clear to say. Um, but what's good news is we haven't seen any new technical updates, any software updates that have to be made. It just seems that the FAA wants to lead the discussion, and FAA will also certify every aircraft that comes off the line, something that was previously delegated to, the, to Boeing to do. Um, Sheila, thank you for joining us. And thank Morgan, you. Good to see you. Thank you. Great to see you. 
Just after Squawk Box went off the air today, Monday, Boeing announced CEO Dennis Mullenberg would be stepping down from his job immediately. Chairman David Calhoun will take on the role in the new year. Squawk Pod will be right back. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Stand by Pro A, pull wide six, play Pro A, dissolve, change music. You're listening to Squawk Pod. This year, 2019, over 200 companies entered the public markets in the U.S., and they each had a few decisions to make before their debuts. Would they trade on the New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ? Would they pursue a direct listing or an IPO? Which bank would they trust to determine their listing price if they chose to IPO? Not every company has the luxury of making those decisions, though. Not everyone who tries to break into the public markets ends up doing so. We work. But for the ones that do eventually get there, it's the beginning of a wild ride. First comes the debut, then quarterly reports for shareholders, regulatory scrutiny, and the constant pressure to prove that the promise the private markets thought you had, the promise your original investors very literally bet on you having, was worth the money. So this last week of the year on Squawk Pod, we're bringing you conversations with the CEOs of some of the hottest market entrants of 2019. First up, Slack. We've followed Slack since its direct listing earlier this year. Slack opens at $38.50. Yep, they chose a direct listing on the NYSC. Now, if you don't know what Slack is, here's Andrew Ross Sorkin to explain. Think of it a little bit as an alternative to email and a little bit of a like WhatsApp or text messaging inside a company. I got a chance to use this tool. I actually use it all the time. This time, though, I did it directly with Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield. As a teaser for you, there is video of Andrew slacking the Slack CEO. It's on CNBC.com. You can check it out. Slack was a big deal. Andrew was at the New York Stock Exchange to talk to CEO Stuart Butterfield the day Slack listed. And Butterfield explains those decisions he made before the debut. It's not an IPO day. It's a direct listing day which is a different thing. Um, so just explain what is actually happening so people understand. All right, I'll do this one pretty briefly. So in a traditional IPO, you have underwriters who commit to buying the shares. They kind of pitch them to a, a small group of investors. Right. All of that happens in private. Um, only those shares are, are available to trade and the rest are locked up. And that might be you know, 90% are locked up and 10% are traded. In a direct listing, potentially 100% of the shares are tradable. Um, and there's many sellers and there's many buyers. So you should find a market clearing price uh, earlier. The big thing for us was in a traditional IPO, it's the company that's offering shares. And you might raise you know, a, a billion dollars or something like that. When you raise a billion dollars, you dilute existing shareholders by issuing new shares. So we're not doing that. Um, we're just opening it up for trading. So there's no money raise. No. You have about $800 million in the bank yes. already. 
So this is unusual because not a lot of companies can actually pull this off yeah. as such. But also, you're rewriting the model to some degree. Wall Street, I imagine, did not like this. Everyone says they like it. We'll see how much they, I don't know how much they really like it, but I think there's a lot of investors who, um, who are used to a model where they get a small allocation, they wanted a big one in direct listing, uh, at least they have the opportunity. I mean, I think you saw that with, with Spotify. Some uh, early institutional investors taking huge positions on, on day one, whereas uh, in a traditional IPO, they might have only got 25 or 50 million. To the extent there are other companies out there like an Airbnb looking at this to say, does this work? How much are you gonna save in fees, Wall Street fees? The savings aren't that great, to be honest. Um, like that, and that's certainly not the motivator. The big one for us was not having to, to raise right. new capital. I think there is, um, you know, one of the hopes for a company like us is that there's not too much volatility. Butterfield returned to Squawk Box earlier this month to speak with our anchors the morning after Slack reported its third quarter financial results to update our team on his post-public journey and if he'd make those same decisions again. Welcome back, everybody. Slack, the collaborative workplace messaging company, reporting better than expected results for the third quarter. Joining us right now to talk about the quarter and the competition that his company's facing is Stuart Butterfield. He's Slack's co-founder and its CEO. And Stuart, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. So the losses that you reported last night were uh, narrower than the street had been expecting. Better numbers on a lot of fronts. Let's talk a little bit about the losses, though. Smaller than anticipated, but you also said that costs were a little harder to control in some areas than others on the conference call. What, what were you talking about? Well, Where I think are those we're, areas? we're still growing so quickly. So um, some of that is one-off charges last quarter related to the, uh, to the listing process itself. Mm-hmm. But the pace of office openings is pretty intense, and there's CapEx build-out associated with that. We opened in Munich and Paris. Uh, our 50-person Tokyo office wasn't quite enough to service our excellent business in Japan, so we're opening in Osaka. So there's a lot of stuff like that, and we're not trying to... Um, to tie those to quarterly boundaries, and we're trying to grow the business as quickly as we can. Okay, so that, that's actually a good thing, to not yes, be absolutely. too focused on what's happening quarter to quarter, look at the longer term. Uh, do you feel like you get enough slack from your investors at this point to actually have that sort of leeway? Yeah, I mean, this is our second earnings as a public company, so you know, until yesterday people had one point, now they have two, so you can start to draw a line. But I think it's going to take a while for, uh, for people to really understand the story. We spend a lot of time with the analyst community, and I think that pays off, and we have some great institutional holders. But I, mean, I think it's going to be another four, five, six quarters before people really understand the trajectory. This is growing at 60% year over year, which, which is incredible. What I'm, I'm looking at the revenue. research here, Goldman, revenue, pardon me, revenue is growing 60%, but I'm looking at the research here, Goldman has, has you at neutral, Credit Suisse has you at neutral, price targets are just a bit above where you are now, so there's a healthy dose of skepticism. I suspect a lot of that has to do with your competition with Microsoft. How are you addressing that particular threat? I, you know, that's the thing that we need to spend the most time on and probably the thing that I would like to spend the least time on because kind of, you can think about these concentric circles of what's going on in the macro competition. Um, then there's the team, the company, organizational structure, bringing in the best executives, opening these offices, and then more than anything else, customers and the, and the product, the service that we're, we're delivering to them. Um, but we do need to address it because I think there's a lot of confusion really deliberately. Do, do they cheat on the numbers really? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, what we said in the earnings call yesterday was... Uh, they announced uh, 20. 20 million. Um, it's a migration of users from Skype for Business. It, it comes if so. If they're on one thing, it looks like they're on Microsoft Team, but they're really not. Is that no, a no, fact? no? I think they they are using it. Uh, they're using it for something that's fundamentally different because okay. that uh, Skype for Business was rebranded from Link. Link had 100 million users five years. Is the user experience that much better with with Slack? I don't. Yeah, I think it's fundamentally different. Here in, in the city, there are hundreds of thousands of people coming into the office this morning who check Slack first thing when they wake up. It's the last thing they check at night, and it kind of runs all of the workflows through the course of the day, and I think that's fundamentally different. 
I think one of the big questions people have had is how many big customers can you get? And I think you talked yesterday about how you have 50-plus customers who are spending a million dollars or more yeah. on those accounts. Um, what are you seeing in terms of growth in that arena and some of those big customers? And can you yeah. continue that pace? That's really a, a highlight of the quarter for us. So uh, 821 customers with $100,000 and up, and uh, of those, a little over 50 with a million dollars and up. In both cases, almost 70% growth year on year. So we're seeing some really big expansions. We're seeing really big new customer lands, and it's all over the world. So uh, Southeast Asia, Grab Taxi in Europe, Vodafone and GlaxoSmithKline. So these are obviously these are big companies, um, but significant expansion here as well. There was a great article published yesterday about uh, TD Ameritrade, mm-hmm. 30% reduction in the use of email after moving to Slack. So that's um, 30%. TD Ameritrade's getting bought. Is that going to continue as Slack? Well, that's maybe, stay there with that's the why such a desirable Schwab. company. <laughs> No, but but seriously, will will you be able to maintain that and keep that when they come in and start consolidating with Charles Schwab? Um, Yeah, I mean, yes, I hope so, because we've actually seen real success both with acquisitions and divestitures. We're not here yet, but what I would love to uh, have the world think is I'm a PE firm and I take some company private. These people aren't on Slack yet, so the first thing we've got to do is get them on Slack if we really want to transform how they they operate. So, yes, I think it's probably a good sign for us. So you are the new poster child for the direct listing. You bypassed the underwritten deal, the classical IPO. If you had to do it over again, would you do a direct listing again? Yeah, I mean, the real motivation for us was we came into the listing process with over $800 million in cash on the balance sheet, so the, we didn't need any to, to raise any more capital, which is obviously the point of a traditional IPO. Um, I think we'll see a lot of interesting evolution over the next couple of years. I know uh, NICE just recently announced the uh, possibility to, to raise capital in a direct listing. Um, but there's a, you know, something that really hasn't transformed since this process was invented, um, and that's taking into account the way that information flows today. So you don't necessarily uh, – we worked with the bankers, and the bankers are actually great. They provide a lot of key help. But you don't need the bankers to disseminate information. You can just webcast stuff. You can publish things on the Internet, and they get out instantly. People don't have to wait till the paper publishes in the morning to look up the stock prices. And in that world, I think um, the information asymmetries that are created can be really flattened out. Thank you very much. Good to see you, Stuart. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's it for today. On our rundown tomorrow, another IPO story for another day closer to 2020. Tomorrow's CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity company that hit the public markets the same month as Slack, but with a much different strategy. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings, every weekday morning, on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Hey, clear. Thanks, guys. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.